The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. On. This looks to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much once again for this wonderful day that you've given us be in your house. Brothers and sisters, you guide me with your Holy Spirit, what we're about to discuss today. Amen. Is everybody awake? Yeah? Because this is going to be a long one. We finally come to a commandment that says you can't have your cake and eat it too. Exodus 20:14. You shall not commit adultery. Now, generations come and generations go, but the Ten Commandments, they stand. They don't need to be amended or revised. In the true sense of the word, we are broken on them when we break them. And if we try to break them, and these commandments are not given to us to be a painful or to be bind our life somehow, but really to set us free. In 1 John 5, 3, we read these words, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So here's what we need to do, because sometimes people ask, well, you know, we talked about murder, we talked about several things in there, abortion, suicide, those things don't apply to me. Well, when you listen to the Word of God, it's not just for you, it's for you to take and go out there to help people that are in need. So um, when we're studying these commandments, really, we need to put these things in our heart, um, Because if the law of God is just on the outside, then it will be just a rule, a regulation, a restraint. But if it's on the inside, it will be righteousness. It will be fulfillment in us, and that will be a liberty. And what we need to do, you know, there's an ancient emperor that built what we call today the Great Wall of China. Anybody seen that? Heard of it? And, you know, it's so huge, chariots can ride on it. But it was built to keep the enemy out. But somehow, those little Mongols, they still got through to the wall. Anybody know how they managed to do that? They bribed the guards. They bribed the guards and they let them in. So we need to have a guard that's guarding our heart in the same way with these Ross. Now, we told that the Ten Commandments, especially this one, is out of date. And especially when I preach on this topic, some say, why do, you, why do you preach it? There's like new morality. When new morality, our homes are coming apart. Uh, our young kids are getting sunk into uh, sewers of sin. And, you know, there is new mor- no new morality. And what we need to go back is go back to the Word of God. And this is not something that's just in the Old Testament. Look with me in Acts 15.29, where it says that you abstain from things offered to idols from blood and things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, fare well. In 1 Corinthians 10.8, we let us not commit what? Sexual immorality, as some of them did. In one day, 23,000 fell. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you shall abstain from sexual immorality. Colossians 3.5 says, Therefore put to death your members which are earth." Pornification, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. 
In Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident, which is adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness. And I can go on and on, but what I wanted you to see, all these places, all these books, they're written to different churches, written at different times, but the message is the same. And this fornication means any sexual immorality before or after marriage. And if you're, you know, sometimes I talk to the youth and they'll say, well, I'm not married. How am I breaking this commandment? You're breaking this commandment against the person that you will marry. And some of us, and maybe it's just me these days, I don't know, maybe I'm that, there's an old man inside me. Sometimes I wonder, you know, you look at the younger kids, uh, who will Stella marry? Who will my daughter marry? Will they be sexually pure? Will they be a person that my daughter can marry or she can be a person that somebody else can marry? And, you know, there's going to be a right person, but the thing is, we must teach them to be the right person. If we want them to marry the right person, if we teach them to be the right person, the odds are they will find the right person. And folks, and I'll tell you this, if we don't teach them, schools will teach them something else. Schools will teach them something else. They will t- teach them how to commit adultery. And I was talking to my brother out in California, and some of the things that they're teaching in fifth grade is, is just craziness now these days. You know, children are taught safe sex. And, and I said, what do you mean by safe sex? Sex is not supposed to be dangerous, right? That is a child. They, you're going to fornicate, but we're going to tell you how to do it properly so you don't catch a disease without having a a baby, that's like talking about safe sin. There's no such thing. Now, I think part of the blame for, for what we're going to discuss today is the church, because we're so uncomfortable to discuss about these topics. You know, somebody says the word sex, and all of a sudden, we treat it as a dirty word. It is not, as we will see in the scripture. So, because we have the responsibility, folks, to teach people, uh, married or not married, it's a ministry. And we must be part of the team helping young people today prepare for marriage and help those who are married uh, arise safely. But a lot of us are reading the 1631 version of King James Version. Anybody know what that version was? 1631 version. In 19, oh, 19, 1631, there was a King James Version Bible printed that became known as the Wicked Bible. And the reason it became a Wicked Bible is because there was a misprint in this very commandment. It did not include the word not. <laughs> so it said, you shall commit adultery. So look it up. I'm not making it up. Um, but again, I don't believe no good Christian wakes up, just gets up in the morning, looks out the window, says, hey, today is a beautiful day. I'm going to go and commit some adultery. But unfortunately, it happens. Why does it happen? We live in a sex-saturated society, immorality or it's glamorized on TV, you know, it's so, it's normalized. Commercials on television these days are consistently use sex, nudity, sell their products. You know, they discovered that sex sells. Uh, sex is used to sell beer, toothpaste, cereal, anything, right? You guys heard that Jake with State Farm commercial? What are you wearing, Jake with State Farm? We laugh at it, but what does that tell us? That the husband is... She supposedly is having an affair with somebody, and we laugh at it. They, they mingle all this filth into the commercials, and, and, you know, viewers get this distorted view of what sexuality and sexuality for, for familiar is all about. So we must teach our young kids 
people who are not married why they should remain pure. And, and if you're married, you need to keep your married, marriage pure. And it's the creator's law which guards the purity of marriage and sanctity of family and preservation of society, as we will see. Now, the first thing I want to talk about today is the sacredness of married life. You see, adultery means to, to harm something, to make impure, damage something that is beautiful. And what is, what is it that they want to damage? It's the marriage life. You know, I heard of a woman, and she was speaking about her husband, and someone said, where did you guys meet? And she said, we met at a travels agency. He was the last resort. Well, marriage is not the last resort. Matter of fact, marriage came before any institution that was created, before church, before anything. And uh, in Genesis 2.21, we read these words. It's the first marriage in Garden of Eden. It's the first institution that got created was marriage. And it says, And the Lord God caused deep sleep and fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took over his, one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord had taken from him, he made into a woman, and he brought it, her to the man. And Adam said, This is my bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. How wonderful. God made two things different, but yet they're one. God ordained marriage. So, you know, I was talking to my wife today, and she said, well, I don't know about that. She completes me. She does. She says, no person can complete you. She does. And I hope I complete her. So we take two different people, and now they're one. And I want you to see what Jesus said about this. And I enjoy seeing Jesus' comments on the Ten Commandments that we're studying. In Matthew 19, 4 through 6, he says, And he answered and said to them, Have you not heard? So he's reminding them, Hey, you didn't hear this? This is old news. He who made them beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. So when they are no longer but no, uh, so, so then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, that God has joined together, let no man separate. So what is the, what is he teaching about marriage here? He's again reinstating the point that marriage is a divine creation. In verse four, he said, and he answered and said to them, "Have you not heard, male and female?" And then he follows up in verse six and says, "So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, that God joined together, let no man separate." So it tells us God joined it. God created it. It's a divine creation. And there's also a supreme commitment in here. If you look at verse 5, and it says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. I believe in the King James Version it says, leave and cleave. So when you leave, you cleave on to your wife and you become one flesh. Uh, it tells us there's earthly commitments. Now, I want to tell you this, and some of you might not agree, but that's what the scripture teaches, that your marriage, your commitment to your wife takes precedence or more supreme than it is to your children, to your spouse. That's, their children are not your supreme commitment in a relationship. It's your spouse. 
And when you're committed to each other, the kids will see that, and you'll also be committed to your kids. And then it also talks about that marriage is a steadfast in continuance. In verse 6, he says, God has joined, let no man separate. God's plan is one man in one moment till death do us apart. He also, that's repeating uh, Genesis 2.24, says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother joined, they shall be one, become one flesh. So it's, it's the welding glue. It's the Greek words here, in, I'm sorry, in the Hebrew words here have the idea of welding or gluing things together. And in Mark 10.9, we said, Therefore that God has joined together, let not man separate. So it tells us marriage is permanent. Marriage is till death do us apart. And you know, talking to young people, sometimes when they say, well, marriage is an option. When you get into a relationship and you're already saying, I'm sorry, marriage is an option, divorce is an option, and you're already saying divorce is an option, you're headed for trouble. You're already headed for trouble. If that's an option for you, um, you know, well, somebody gets divorced, they say we had problems. Well, everybody has problems in their marriage. Everyone. Now, there is Bible tells us the reasons you can and can't divorce and so forth. And, of course, I am not uh, for if somebody's getting physically or something abused and things like that. And those kind of things are going on. Uh, but in, in general, divorce is not your first option. And the main reason for divorce is commitment. The, the reason that people with problems uh, stay married and people <laughs> with problems get divorced is their commitment. Is their commitment. So if you have a 90% marriage that is wonderful and 10% of it is bad, are you going to throw it away or are you going to work at it? And, you know, uh, marriage is a minefield. For those that have been married for a while, it's a minefield, right? You never know. You you learn. I mean, when my wife and I got married, I had to learn real fast, right? Um, I remember when she came home, she wanted to make a romantic dinner and things weren't going out well. Uh, She messed it up. She didn't cook it right and all that kind of stuff. She was upset, and she said, you know, I believe this is the worst dinner I ever made. And I said, no, honey, this is not the worst dinner you ever made. I had to learn to choose my words wisely. But, but just get the idea of divorce out of your head. You know, everybody's a loser in a divorce. And, you know, we have this divorce that says is a, is a no-fault divorce. That's what we have. Just, you know, we just, that's a contradiction in terms. So... You have a wonderful marriage, work at it. It takes, it takes commitment, it takes work. And it's a miraculous consummation. Here in 19.6 in Matthew, he says, so they are no longer but one, two, but one flesh. You know, when, when you take, if some of you know me better than, than others, but when you take two personalities as different as myself and my wife, and and, you know, you blend those personalities together and you make them one f- flesh, it's a miracle. It is a miracle. Our marriage is a miracle, but Jesus makes it work. It's so strange. And, it, you know, it, I was thinking about it. If you, and I was opening up the faucet upstairs, and I was thinking you open up the cold water, you open up the hot water, right? But when they're mixed, you, can't no, you can no longer separate them. They become one. It's like two streams intermingled that they never uh, can be separated. And I told my wife, I said, if you ever leave me, I'm coming with you. And I think, you know, that's why she probably thought of murder a couple of times, as we discussed last time. It's never to be separated. So it's just a wonderful way God does that. So guard, 
God ordained marriage, he created marriage, and then he gave a wedding gift. According to the Bible, the origin of sexuality is God himself. Mankind did not create sex. We didn't do it. The gift of sex was presented by God in the book of Genesis. Again, uh, God created male and female. For what purpose? There's nothing, again, folks, there's nothing dirty about the word sex. The reason it's dirty is because we say, you know, we, we created that kind of a impression in our culture and our society. But in Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators, adulterers, God will judge. That's God's statement about the sanctity of, of, of sex. And also, God only teaches very clearly about the sexual identity. If you look at Deuteronomy 22.5, it says, A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. Who are deuce, who, for all who do are an abomination to the Lord of our God. So, you know, not only that, but it also teaches sexual identity. And, and, you, and if you go to 1 Corinthians um, 11, 14 through 15, it even talks about hairstyles, how you make your hair. Doesn't even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's glory to her, and her hair is given her for her cover, a covering. So, you know, I'm not going to discuss hairstyles, but basically what that does in our language is a woman should look like a woman, a man should look like a man. And, you know, it's important that we teach view of sexual conduct and identity in our churches, and we're so afraid to do that when the Scripture is very clear on it. And, you know, today it's almost impossible. You know, I went to a tennis lesson with with Stella once, and I couldn't figure out. I had to bump my wife say, is that a girl or is that a boy? Because you can't, you can't tell anymore. But Bible intention, again, is here's one man and one woman in marriage. And sexual relationships is to occur in the circle of marriage. That's the intention of God. So when you do that in the circle of uh, marriage, experience is beautiful, meaningful, and it's fulfilling. And there's two primary purposes for that. What? You know, we're, we take... A husband and wife share with God in creation of human life. And we read that in 1 Genesis chapter 1, 28. It says that God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and so on. So he's telling us to populate it with kids. And then Ecclesiastes 9, 9 says, Live joyfully with the wife from whom you all the days in vain life he has given under the sun. So in days of vanity. So it's, it's for your fulfillment as well. So your enjoyment. So it's a mutual fulfillment in the marriage experience. So the Bible celebrates the sexual act of love. And within marriage, it's a gift of God. And so God, let me say this too, encourages sexual relations within marriage. So that's why he says you should not commit adultery. So what's, what's, what's the sinfulness of this adulterous life? If we, God created marriage, he gave a gift of sex, and he said to use it. So what what what's so what's 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 so sinful about it? You see, when God made you and I, God gave us certain impulses, good impulses, hunger, thirst, right? Um, need for rest, need for achievement, and need for sexual pleasure and sex. And all these are God-given instincts. They're not dirty, nothing dirty, nothing impure about those. But the devil takes those things, 
distorts them, perverts them, twists them, and misuses them, and wants you to abuse them. You see, in other words, the devil's job is for you to fulfill a natural God-given desire in an unnatural, ungodly way. And what does it mean to commit adultery? The, mean, the, the simplest answer we have is adultery is marital infidelity. But suppose, so primary purpose of this commandment, first of all, is to protect marriage. Adultery is the greatest sin because it violates trust between husband and wife and also violates the marriage covenant and the promise that you made when you stood in front of God. And Bible confirms that the penalty for this sin is death. In Leviticus 20.10, it says, In the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely put to death. But having sex is not the only way we commit adultery. That's why the title of the sermon is kind of, you know, abstain from words and deeds. Obviously, we know what the deeds is. But what, what, what do we mean by words? Because you see, most adulterous relationships, they don't start with sex. They start with inappropriate intimacy. And the seventh commandment forbids man or woman to flirt with another man or woman who is not his wife. Or a single man gets close to another woman that's somebody else's wife. You know, we, have, we call that, that little sweet talk. You might be doing it at work or whatever. You get a little flirty. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't go and talk to the woman. <laughs> I'm not saying you can't talk to other woman if you're married. But that sweet talk, you know, forbids a married woman to seek also emotional support from another man other than the husband. You know, it could be a work, co-worker. It could be somebody in church. If, you know, we have internet chat rooms these days. And the seven commandment really requires husbands and wives to nurture their love for one another emotionally and spiritually as well as sexually. So how do we break this commandment? What, what else is forbidden? Prostitution is forbidden here. Some grounds for adultery and fornication. Homosexual relations are ruled out because we already said it's between the husband and wife. Also forbidden sexual violence Within the marriage, pedophilia, incest, you know, there's sexual abuse inside the marriage. Those things are forbidden. So why all forms are forbidden? Forbidding. Not because sex is bad, but because sex is designed to be such a powerful force for good. Sex is like the super glue when used properly, right? It seals the bond of matrimony. And the glue, the covenant that helps the marriage hold secure. That's why it's husband and wife's, as I mentioned earlier, it encourages or requires to have sexual relations. Because if you read 1 Corinthians 7, 3, it says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. And then if you go down further, the three verses in verse 5, it says, Do not deprive one another except for constant. Uh, with consent for a time, and why? So Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of control. So there, there's, there's certain times that we do hold back, maybe health reasons, maybe fasting and prayer, like it says, but it encourages it. And since sex is like super glue, squeezing it out the wrong time at the wrong place creates an awful mess, doesn't it? You ever squeezed out super glue at the wrong place? Wrong things get joined together, getting them unstuck. Tears the soul. 
It starts tearing the soul. So, but today, you know, sexual immorality is, is common in our culture. People don't even want to, even in churches, don't even want to discuss or talk about it. Because in college campuses, just t- think about the casual sex on college campuses. Uh, there's aggressive promotion of homosexuality as a lifestyle. Sexual material we see on television. Consider all the uh, uh, vast industries of pornography, video stores, strip clubs, phone lines, cables, now with the internet. And we'll talk about that here in a second. Then consider all the personal consequences. Disease, broken families, divorce, sexual abuse of children. It's tempting to think, folks, that this hypersex culture is the problem. But the problem also is in the church. This happens in the church. It's common in the church. Christians, including pastors, other spiritual leaders, get cut up in all the same kinds of sexual sin. On any given Sunday, there's somebody sitting in any church that looked at pornographic images just, just the night before or had sex out of marriage, and they come. So the problem is not the culture. The problem is our own sinful hearts. Sinful hearts. And then Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27, 28, he said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus, again, ups the ante on the Ten, on the ten Commandments here that we see. And, and he says that famous words, the law governs our inward thoughts as well as our outward actions. It covers both desires of the hearts and the deeds of the body. And this means we are forbidding, forbidden to lust. Jesus told his disciples not to look at anyone lustfully. Now, looking is not the problem. But whenever you look at someone and viewing that person as an object to satisfy your desire, we're lusting after sin. We, we break it by beginning to fantasize about the relationship making suggestive comments, telling dirty jokes. And Ephesians 5, uh, 3, verses 3 to 4 says, But fornification and all cleanness or covetousness let not even be named among you as it's fitting for the saints, neither filthiness nor foolishness nor coarse joking. That's, where, that's what I'm talking about. Sometimes it starts with words. We're all breaking this seventh commandment in the heart. And, you know, we're less concerned uh, it seems to me that we're less concerned with the sins of our hearts because nobody else knows them, right? Because outward sins people can see, but the inward sins, no, or so we think, or so we think. But our inward flaws are just as fatal, sins of the heart. And Proverbs six twenty five twenty six says, Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids, for by means of a harlot... A man is reduced to crust of bread, and adulterous will prey upon his life. It could cost you your life. And given into lust, Solomon says, is also like playing with fire. In uh, Proverbs 6.27, can a man take a fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burnt? But worst of all, sexual sin brings under the wrath of God. Proverbs 6.32 says, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. Why? He who does does so destroys his soul. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's words in chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, do, not, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he says, do not be deceived. 
So regardless of what people tell you, underline that in your Bible, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So regardless of what culture tells you, God tells you in his word, do not be deceived. Marriage shall be honored by all, and marriage bed should be kept pure. And let's take a look at the famous adultery that took place in the Word of God. I think everybody knows it's David, right? David was a king of Israel, and the Bible tells us how one evening in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3, it says, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Warm spring evening. David had everything a man could possibly want. Living in royal luxury. Established his kingdom. The Bible tells us he was very handsome. Moreover, he was a righteous man. After God's own heart, he wrote beautiful hymns. And he strolled around the roof. He was a master of everything that he saw on top of that roof. There was nothing more for him to gain. But he had still everything to lose. And walking around the roof seems like an innocent enough, but you see, David had no business of being there in the first place. He should be been defending his people in battle. Instead, he was walking back and forth and going nowhere, just killing time. If we look at 2 Samuel 11, 1, it says, And it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. This verse does more than simply tells us where David was. This tells us where he should have been and what he should have been doing. His nation was still at war. His kingly duty is to lead the armies into battle. But he decided to take it easy. The king has stopped sacrificing. He stopped serving others, giving his life for others. It's not surprising that he fell into sexual sin. He was just bored. And committing adultery is sometimes considered, you know, a masculine thing to do. I hear some people sometimes brag about it. They just, you know, the way the men are and all that kind of stuff. But David's example shows us clearly in the Bible the real truth is just the opposite. The real truth is the opposite. The man of God does not live for himself, but for others. And this helps, enables him to keep his sexual desires in check. But when a man turns inward, and he becomes vulnerable to all kinds of sin. Sexual sin, you have to understand, is never just about sex. It's always connected to the rest of your life. David never would have been committed or never committed adultery if he would have been doing what he was supposed to be doing. And I tell people, how you get in trouble? You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. If you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, then you don't have time to do what you're not supposed to do. And that's what happened to David here. And there's idleness, there's isolation, and he gave into temptation. And look at Samuel 11 too, it says, and it happened, arose from his bed, walked on the roof, she was beautiful to behold, and so forth. You see, if David had just caught a glimpse of the woman, he would not be guilty. 
But he did more than this. His glance turned into a gaze. He started looking her up and down, what he would like to do and so forth. And, you know, he began lusting after her. How? By looking. So you see the eyes is a window to a sinful desire. Look in Second uh, Peter 2.14. It says, Having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a trained covetous practices and cursed children. You see, when we start looking at it and we don't look away, we start fantasizing. Then it goes from your thought life into your heart. And be careful of what we're looking at today, especially these days. When there are sexual images almost everywhere we look, you know, porn has become the norm. And the greatest danger of all internet is, which is the most powerful source in history of pornography these days. What makes pornography or internet so dangerous? It's anonymous. It's anonymous. Accessible, affordable. Anyone with a computer or an iPhone or any kind of phone has access to it. They can download pornography in complete privacy. Stream sexual material is endless. And you know, I was reading about porn addiction, and porn addiction is, 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 is very hard and for those that are struggling with it because the addiction, because they did not put guards in front of their eyes, that addiction is just as strong as somebody struggling with addiction of cocaine. That's how addictive pornography is. And I was reading about it. Why is it so, why is it more and more men struggle with it? And it's due to the internet. It said with old porn, once you view it, you consumed it, you know, like a magazine. You chewed the flavor out of the gum. This can't be done with internet. The gum never runs out of flavor. There's more pieces of flesh of what's behind every old one. You know, it keeps going. And as long as there's more to see, some people will keep looking, including Christian. And silent infection of pornography in the church, folks, is very deadly. It's very deadly. It denigrates women, uh, damages relationships, damages man's uh, spiritual ability to lead. How many fine pastors have fallen into this, into this sin? And they had the ability to lead. But rather than fleeing from temptation, in 2 Timothy 2.22, it says, Flee your also youthful lusts, but in righteousness, uh, faith, love, peace, for all those in the Lord a pure heart. And, and in Romans 13.14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, make no provision to the flesh and fulfill its lust. But you see, David began to think about it. How to glory, uh, gratify or his desires of his sinful nature. And in 2 Samuel 11.3, continue reading, it says, So David sent out and inquired about the woman. So now he's looking at her. He has this lust burning. He sends out to inquire about the woman. And someone said, this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uruh the Hitty. The whole matter should have ended right there. It should have ended right there. She was a married woman. But given her, you know, further question, uh, David felt like he had to have her. She became his obsession. And this is the way lust works. It takes over you. It takes power to own you, pulling you deeper and deeper and deeper till you're powerful to resist. And so in verse 4 of Samuel, David sent messages and took her, and she became, came to him and lay with for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to, the, returned to her house. Seemed like a small thing. Made a mistake, moment of weakness, but soon they discover she was pregnant. And that's when the cover-up 
began. By the time David was finished, the husband was dead. Not only he was guilty of adultery, but he was guilty of lying, guilty of murder, and adultery. For a while, it seemed like he also got away with it. He had to scramble, as we, for those of you know the story, scramble a little bit to make it, things happen. But everything went according to plan except one thing. Except one thing. In 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, it says this, And when her mourning was over, David sent out and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So, you know, he killed his husband. She's, she's, she's a widow. She's crying and all that stuff. So he brings her in and takes her as a wife. Everything's settled, right? No. But the thing, but the thing that the David had done displeased the Lord. And I'm telling you folks, if you live your life for the audience of one, it doesn't matter who you displease or please. God's number one is the person you got to please. But the thing David had done had displeased the Lord. And, and like David, we often think that we can sin with impunity, right? We engage in sexual fantasy. What, what's, what, take a look at some, who doesn't look at pornography? Uh, it doesn't seem all that harmful. I can stay effectively in my ministry. No one will ever know. But God always knows. God always knows. And Proverbs 5, 20, 21 says, For you, shall, for you, my son, be enraptured by a moral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress. For the ways of men are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. You know, I heard of a thief, a uh, bank robber. He came and passed a note to a teller and said, this is, this is a bank robbery. This is a stick-up. Give me all your money. And she passed the note back saying, fix your tie. They're taking your picture, stupid. You know, and God's candid camera is grinding away. The light and the darkness are light to him. In Psalm 139, 12, it says, Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, you, but the night shines as day. The darkness or the light are both alike to you. God sees everything. God sees everything we do with our bodies. Uh, he knows what we look at, we think about, our desire, what we touch. And guess what? He will hold us accountable. God certainly held David accountable from the moment King David decided to do this, his act on his lust, his life became a tragic series of disappointments. He lost everything. David's family was torn apart. Uh, kingdom was divided. His beloved son rebelled against him. And even having sex with his wife on top of his roof when he was in exile. And all for the sake for what? For a few minutes of bed, the uncontrolled lust. Do you think it was worth it? What are you really gaining? And what are you willing to lose? So why is it such a dangerous sin? Because first of all, it's a sin against your own self. Do you realize that? Not against your spouse. It's a sin against your own self. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. No greater sin will do you more damage to you personally, spiritually, mentally, physically, than immorality. So sexual immorality, in all ways, is a sin against yourself. It's a sin against the home. Folks, adultery is a sin against the home. There's a sad thing. You know, here's the unfair thing about this. There's multiple thousands of children every 
here in America are blasted and torn apart and wrecked and ruined by some selfish father or some selfish mother who seem not to care for the family, who seem not to care for the, for the children. All they want to do is satisfy their desire just like David did. And let me say this too. When a man or a woman who commits adultery tells their kids, your father or your mother, they're not worth much. And your father is liar, cheat, or whatever, that they're not worth much. And then you, my child, are not as important as my own satisfaction. My satisfaction is more important than you are. And you know, God built the home. These Ten Commandments are given for the home. He built walls around the home. God made a home because God knew he had spirit, man has spiritual needs, certain needs, and it's all found within the family. And folks, every child has a right to be raised in a home like that. Every child has a right to be raised where daddy loves mommy and faithful to her husband and mama loves daddy and faithful to him. And adultery affects not just you, but your kids as well. It's a sin. So it's a sin against the home. It's a sin against, do you realize that when you're looking at your pornography or, or quietly nobody sees it? It's a sin against the church too. It's a sin against the church. Somebody says, well, it's none of your business. Well, if I'm the pastor of this church and you're a member of this church, it is my business. Why? Because we're one body. We're one body. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 3.17, says, If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And then he continues in 1 Corinthians 6.15, Do you not know what your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. We sin against the church, and a lot of churches are weak churches. We talk about, why isn't the gospel being preached? And some of the churches, we don't consider them churches. They're shows. Why? Why the church is weak? Because there's sexual immorality. And folks, it's being covered up, and some of the churches are coming out with it. And, you know, from decades ago, this type of sin should not be covered up. It should be offered help. And we have some help for those that are struggling with pornography uh, inside this church. So it needs to be helped. And again, the, you know, when people come to you with problems, your job is not to bust them upside the head. Your job is to help them overcome those things. And, but a lot of churches are weak because a lot of these things is going on and we're too afraid to talk about it. And it's a sin against God. And Proverbs 6.32 says, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He does so, destroys his soul. Why does he destroy his soul? Because he's singing, sinning against God. Now, don't get the idea that pure life is just an option you might choose after you become Christian. Revelations very clearly in 21.8 says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abdominal, murderers, sexual mourners, so forth, oh liars, they're where? In the lake which burns with fire and brimstones. No matter how you glamorize it, God says, it's a sin against me. It's a sin against me, and my children don't live this way. Well, you say, well, I'm a member of church, and you know, I've been doing these things, and nothing happened to me. Well, there's a verse for, for you in Hebrews 12.8, which says, but if you are without chastening and all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Are you sure he's your father in the first place? God said, if you were my son, I would have disciplined you. 
In Romans 2.5 says, But in accordance with your hardness and imprudent heart, treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation and righteousness, judgment of God. Maybe you're just, maybe you're just treasuring up. You see, because adultery is a sin that God must revenge, as he did with David. It's a sin against the Lord, and we must recognize it. And in, in Proverbs 6.29 says, so, so is he who go, goes in the neighbor's wife, whoever touches her shall not be innocent. You're not innocent. Don't kid yourself. It doesn't make any difference what other people say. It doesn't mean you teach what liberal pastors preach or whatever, or anthropologists, sociologists say. Remember that thing I told you to underline. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. So how can we put in some safeguards into our life? And that's the last thing I want to talk about. How are we going to live in this adulterous and sinful generation? Well, first of all, you have to make one big decision. First thing is decision. Number one, if you don't make up your mind, folks, then your unmade mind will unmake you. And in Isaiah 1.18, it says, Come now and let us reason, says the Lord. Through your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You need to come to Jesus Christ. You need to repent of yourself, sins, and come to him. He will forgive you. He will not hold grudges. Every stain, every blot, every burr, every blemish, he will cleanse. Come to Jesus, and I promise you on the authority of the word of God, he will cleanse you. And if the purpose of your life to glorify God in your life your daily decisions will revolve around that. And it's the purpose of your life is undefined who you're going to please or you're going to succeed or you're going to fail. In 1 Kings 18.21, Elijah came to the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but follow him. So make that decision. So the worth decision. Then when you make that decision, and I hope that it's the right one, you become dependent on him. Dependence. Not only decide for God, but depend on Christ. He doesn't merely say, I forgive you, now go do better. He comes into your life and gives you the energy, gives you the power to live by day. Remember, it's not your strength, but his. In 1 John 4, 4 says, you are of God of little children. He has overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. So you become dependent on his power. Not only dependent, but start developing, folks. Let your love continue to grow in your relationship. You see somebody say, love is like a diamond, beautiful gem. No, it's not. It's like a flower. You got to feed it. You got to water it. You got to work on it. You got to cultivate it. There's development. It's cultivated. And Ephesians 5.25 says, husband, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That's how much you got to love your wife. And folks, I'll say this, if you don't love your wife more than you did when you got married, I believe you love her less. I love my wife more, way more than I, you know, 18, 19 years ago. If you love your wife less than you did back then, I don't know what to tell you. You got to work on it. And, you know, do those little things. You know, I got to work on them too. Opening the door for, for, you know, for my wife when we go out somewhere. But it's cold outside, like, get, you, get in your own door, you know? Got to stay out in the cold, you know? Somebody said, you know, when a man opens the door, two things are new, either the wife or the car. 
But do those things. How they say, keep the honey in the honeymoon, right? Um, you remember how you opened the door? Do those things once in a while. So love needs to continue to grow and needs to be cultivated. But then also develop a biblical conscience. Not only develop your relationship, but develop a biblical conscience. In Psalm 119.9 says, how can a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed according to your word. In Joshua 1.8 it says, this book of law shall not depart from youth, uh, your mouth, but you shall meditate it on day and night, and you be observed to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your ways prosperous, and then you have good success. So, you know, in a struggle with temptation, we usually live out our values, not our beliefs. And if our conscience is trained by the Bible, trained by the gospel, we're committed, committed to those principles. And when temptation comes, as they come on everybody, just like dust that comes on everybody, we are going to face those temptations with confidence instead of fear and failure. And then the next word is discipline. We need discipline. In Proverbs 13, 20, it says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but companion of fools shall be destroyed. Friends, friends that are urging you to sin or causing you to sin are not friends. Watch what you said in front of your eyes. Don't watch those things. Don't abide those things. In Psalm 101, verse 3, it says, I will not set anything wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. So if you wouldn't put garbage in your mouth, why are you putting garbage in your brain? Why are you filling up with, with garbage? Um, you know, so somebody said, if you, will not, uh, uh, if you will not fall down, you ought not to walk in slippery places, right? So create discipline. Flee sexual immorality. In first, we already read in 1 Corinthians uh, 6.18. You need to learn to have discipline. Joseph fled literally sexual immorality. And then have determination. Determination. You know, honor the state of marriage. A loving spouse can meet the need of attention, acceptance, affection, admiration, activity. It, it's all there. Your, your spouse is supposed to be your best friend. Uh, you know, it, it, we, we, we have the vows that we say. What does that say? To, to have and to hold. That's commitment. For better and worse, that's belonging. For richer or poorer, that's loyalty. In sickness and in health, that's support. To love and to cherish, that's faithfulness. Till death do us apart, that's companionship. Do not fear scriptural marriage. We need to have that deep determination in our heart. Now, perhaps some of you say, there's been a time of moral impurity in your life. Maybe, maybe it wasn't actual outwardly. Maybe it was inwardly lust in your haps. And perhaps you're saying, well, too late for me, Pastor. I, I didn't get this sermon on time. I'm already guilty. Well, I want to tell you that we have a Savior who can take all those broken pieces, who can take all the broken pieces of your home and your heart if you will give them to him. And Jesus is the only one that can put Humpty Dumpty back together again. He is the only one. And we know that in, in the conversation in the uh, book of John, uh, chapter 8, uh, verses 3 through 11, we're, we're ta- we see a woman taken in adultery, and she was brought in front of Jesus, and they would wonder, what, what is he going to do? Uh, but the law was clear. The law was clear. They were correct on the law. The law said she had to be stoned to death. You know, I always wondered where the man was in that story. But Jesus said in John 8, 7 says, So when they continued to ask him, he raised himself up and said to them, Who is without sin among you? Let him throw a stone at her first. And then you hear 
rocks falling, oldest to the youngest. And then in, he continues in verses 10 through 11, says, When Jesus has raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those two accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And she said, Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. And then the important words, Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. You know, if we go back to the story of David for a moment, the whole affair, there was only one thing that David did correct. Uh, it, it, he admitted his sin. God loved David. And one of his miraculous or marvelous mercies, amazing grace, is that he sent Nathan to confront him about the sin. And once the sin was exposed, David knew that he was guilty. David knew he was guilty. Even more, he knew for what he has done carries a death penalty. And in 2 Samuel 12, uh, 13 says, So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to him, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. There are many lessons we learn from David's interview with Nathan. We, we learn that we cannot hide our sin from God. We learn that sin has always has consequences. Uh, we learn that because sexual immorality thrives in secrecy. And we need open assistance, folks, if you're struggling with other believers to help you away, to turn away from this sin. But we also learn this. When we sin, we should go straight back to God and confess it. David's full confession is documented in, in Psalm 51. You can read on, on, on your own. But he began by crying out to God to forgive him. David uh, still had to face the consequences of sin, but his sin was forgiven. And at the cross, we can find, this, uh, find the same, same forgiveness, same mercy, same grace. With cleansing for our guilt, power to start living for Christ again. And if we keep hiding our sin, be sure your sin will find you out. Eventually, it will be open. But if we repent of our sin, God will have mercy. In 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Isn't that the good news? Amen? Well, let's, that's the good news. Let's end right there. Let's pray. Father, today we realize the passions of the flesh are how misleading they are, and we understand the power of temptation, and we pray that with all earnestness that as you taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we think of those today, Father, those who are struggling with past, maybe they pray that you will enable them to put this past behind them, to repent, to be cleansed, to be free, to be forgiven, restored, because we know that you are a God of restoration and God of forgiveness. And we are reminded in the words of Jesus to the woman taking adultery, he says, go and sin no more. And we think of those, Father, who perhaps have been living lives of duplicity, lives that cover sin or in secret, we pray that you might break into their lives today and honestly that they may come to you for cleansing and restoration forgiveness. And as we leave this place today, Father, I also ask that you be with us and I ask that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.